Welcome to a special edition of the C-Suite podcast dedicated to discussing a new report entitled Joining the Dots, Decision Making for a New Era, which has been jointly published by the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants and the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. I'm Russell Goldsmith and joining me to discuss the findings are Tony Mannering, uh, SEMA's Executive Director, External Affairs, and Gillian Lees, SEMA's Director of Governance and Risk Research. Now, for those listeners new to the show... We welcome all your feedback and comments on any part of the discussion, and you can do that very simply by sharing your thoughts on social media using the hashtag hash C-Suite podcast. Tony and Gillian, welcome to the show. Um, now, I've read your report, and uh, I have to say it's pretty damning in, in places. Um, in the introduction, it, it talks about how the large majority of senior leaders battle against bureaucratic decision-making processes, siloed and short-term thinking, breakdowns in trust and collaboration inside the organisation, and difficulties with translating ever-expanding volumes of informing into uh, relevant knowledge. So I'm kind of confident we've got a, quite an interesting discussion coming up. But I thought perhaps we get into the before we get into the meat of the findings, maybe Tony, you could um, sort of start by giving us some background as to why SEMA and the AICPA um, felt the need to, to carry out the research in the first place. Well, thanks. And I think what's really impressive is that people are talking about all of the issues you've just highlighted. And they recognise that those are challenges that they need to overcome. And for SEMA, as the world's leading and largest institute of management accountants, right at the heart of decision-making in businesses and other organisations, understanding what will be the basis of reaching a good judgement, taking a decision that's likely to be successful to create value for the short, the medium and the long term. That's what we're about. So understanding the context within which business is taking those decisions, recognising that it really isn't business as usual anymore. Mm. But when we talk about VUCA, the reality of that is rapid change, incredible uh, connectivity between events in one part of the world or one part of the supply chain, having to draw on all sorts of different information, often in real time, to make these judgments in order to inform these decisions. So if it's not a business-as-usual world, then it's not just about the data and the information. It's also about the context within which that's formed and it's understanding the realities of decision-making in today's business okay, environment. Gillian, um, I mentioned just before there the headline challenges. I, I was wondering if you can just give us a bit more background as to how you carried out the search, maybe how long it, it took and, and, when, and when it was actually done, and, and also what your key findings were. Yeah, thank you. Well, this is a piece of research that SEMA and AICPA together, did together as part of our joint venture. Um, and that joint venture has been around now since 2012. Um, and we launched a new designation, which was the CGMA, uh, which is Charter Global Management Accountant. So this research is all part of that um, sort of uh, effort so what we did, we conducted a survey and we interviewed nine um, senior executives from all across the world, a, a real, really good range. So including the CFO of Shell, um, CFO of Weight Watchers, there was the head of EY. Um, and we supplemented that with a survey of 300 C-suite executives. Again, that was from across the world and they were all from reasonably large organisations and we asked them all sorts of questions around how they were dealing with decision-making, um, what challenges they had around bureaucracy, whether they were struggling with trust, what skills they needed, um, what, what 
challenges they were having around information. So a really wide range of questions touching on some of the technical challenges, but also some of the softer cultural issues. So it was a really good mixture of questions that we asked them. Um, and we, we got some findings around all those areas, around, you know, the bureaucracy issues, which we'll obviously come on to, um, you know, the, the difficulties they were having with building trust in their sure. organisations. Okay, okay. Yeah. well, uh, <clears throat> I'd like to go through each of those key findings individually. And, I, and you just mentioned bureaucracy there. So obviously that's a, a good place to start. Um, and, and that was one of the things. It, it said bureaucracy and the fact that there is a need for agile decision-making. Now, now, the report states, I've managed to dig out a few stats because I had a good read of it, as I, as I mentioned mm-hmm. beforehand. Uh, 29% of your respondents cited that the single biggest barrier to more effective decision-making was that organisational silos and bureaucracy are creating coordination problems. Yes, yeah, so well, what we did, we, we asked them a whole range of um, questions around that um, and we, we gave them an option of culture and bureaucracy and, and it was, bureaucracy was the biggest one that they cited. Tony, what's, what's your thoughts on, on that? It's understanding that the way in which organisations work, just having to, it, it, they're having to think about what are the right structures in the context of all that they're having to, having to deal with, and what's the right information. So let me just give you two bits of um, data that, that 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 help to kind of drive that understanding. So, fifty-eight thousand companies on one hundred and twenty in one hundred and twenty countries and stock on one hundred and twenty stock markets. Their combined market value is around uh, $71 trillion in 2014. Over half of that value came from intangibles, wasn't on the balance sheet. So relying on the traditional information just isn't enough anymore. It's a bit like trying to fly a plane with half of the dashboard covered up and you wouldn't want to be in that kind of plane, would you? Just one other. McKinsey have recently published some research which says that over $21 trillion of global value will depend on the robustness of cyber security arrangements. And when you think about what that means in terms of how businesses need to join the dots and how they need to connect their own bureaucracies and silos, you can't tackle those kind of cyber security issues other than as one interconnected business mm. i'm desperately trying to remember how many noughts there are in a trillion but i'm not even uh not even going to go there um it's a lot <laughs> a lot <laughs> uh, a lot a lot of cash jillian i i was intrigued i mean you, again at the top of the, of the show just now you mentioned some of those um uh, executives that you did the one-on-one interviews with mm-hmm. i was intrigued by what um kenneth goldman the cfo at, at yahoo said in the report and he when he was describing one of his first acts he said uh, when he joined the company which was to restructure the reporting lines. And it states in the report, and this is what he said, he said he did much more functionalization of the organization. Now, I must admit, you know, functionalization is not necessarily a word. I've, I've come across that that often. But maybe you could explain how some of what he implemented helped you know, achieve this agile decision-making process that you're sort of discussing in the, in the report. Yes, well, it, it is, it's quite a word, but I, I, I don't tend to like big words too much. So I kind of think about, well, what does that actually really mean? Um, and I think what he really meant was that he really just simplified and streamlined the process so that everybody had a very clear role, a very clear reporting line. And it sounds quite simple, 
But in many organisations, that's something they don't get right and, and you've got sort of duplication of effort. And the way I like to look at it is it's like a sport, um, say football or netball or whatever team sport, where everybody has a clear role and they know what their job is, but then they can work together. And I think really that's what he was talking about, that he, he had this very clear reporting line so that then people could work together much more easily. OK. Well, let's sticking with, with yourself, Gillian, on this the second big issue that, that um, is listed, and, and that's uh, about the lack of trust in the boardroom and collaboration across the business. Could you share some of the findings on, on that side of it? Yeah, we had a... a quite a few interesting statistics around this and we looked at both trust and collaboration but looking at trust first it it was quite worrying that um, 43% of the C-suite felt that the level of trust between them um, needed to be improved and I I was really struck by a recent presentation that I heard at some management training event and they'd found this tape of the late Steve Jobs and the first thing he said was the first dysfunction of a team is an absence of trust. And I thought, yes, this is really what that statistic yeah, speaks that's to. A, that's a high number, 43%. Yes, and, and really, if you think about it, if you can't trust each other yeah. at whatever level, C-suite, any level, you just can't then believe that people are going to do what they say they're going to do. You can't rely on the information they're giving you. The, the team just can't work. So he was really saying, and, and I've... this. Now, I, this bears with my own experience, that it's it needs teamwork. It needs time to build that trust as well. Um, and someone, a, a chairman I was speaking to recently, said it really was an aha moment for him when he realised actually it wasn't all about achieving all the tasks first. Mm. The first task he had to do was build the relationships and build the level of trust, and then maybe they could achieve goals yeah well if you haven't got that trust in the c-suite then surely that will eventually spill out into Mm. the rest of the organization i mean tony what's what's your thoughts would would you agree that's a pretty worrying statistic i think it is worrying and more than that i think this is one of the first reports if not the first which has asked that question because most of the conversation about trust is a conversation about whether society trusts business whether that's estate agents or banks or whoever I think this is one of the first reports to just ask the really simple question, do we trust each other? And why that matters so much is really driven home by the contribution from Mark Weinberger, the global chairman and CEO of EY. And he said, data is important, but remember that numbers are the results of what you do. They are not what you do. Revenues are a direct result of how much value you bring to your clients and customers, if you focus on them, the revenues will follow. And he goes on to say, this shows the importance of distinguishing data from noise by focusing on what really matters to create value, which we think is a great quote. But the point here is if you don't trust each other, it's really hard to separate out data from noise to understand what matters. And particularly because one person alone or one profession alone, one perspective alone can't do that. That has to be a shared view that is talked through, that comes to a common understanding in the context of the business or the organisation, framed by its business model, recognising the validity of different people's perspectives. And this is really basic stuff. Mm -hmm. It is team stuff, as Gillian was Mm -hmm. referring to earlier. 
And if you don't trust each other's colleagues, if you're not going to pass the ball to each other and just let it go off the other side because that makes you look better and that other guy look like a complete wally, then you're not even at first base or whatever sporting metaphor we're going to stretch yeah. into in terms of being able to take the right decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, well so you, you say it's kind of basic stuff. So bearing in mind how big that number is, what, what are they actually doing about it to, to you know, address the issue? So trust is right at the top of the business agenda and from boardrooms to every level of the business, there's an increasing conversation about how to build trust, how to earn trust, how to be authentic in a social media age so that people do earn that trust and are seen to be trusted, recognising that trust can't be manufactured, it can't be spun, it can't be managed from internal communications top down. We're involved in a, a number of very big and important initiatives in that uh, regard. One with the FRC, the Finance Reporting Council, which is looking at updating the Corporate Governance Code to recognise the importance of culture. Uh, what are the behaviours? How are they incentivised? And that's a theme that we'll come back to, I think, in this interview. And what is the culture that results from that? And obviously... The result of that culture can be one that creates or diminishes trust. Uh, looking at individual businesses, the kind of uh, activity that's promoted by the uh, report here, the focus on integrated thinking, the focus on integrated reporting to better be able to tell your value creation story. And we'll go on to talk later, I think, about our global management accounting principles, which are all about how you shape and form that common view of all of the information that you need in order to take the right decisions. So this is moving from describing the problem to then creating real solutions. Well, t tell us a bit, I don't know, Gillian, maybe you can tell, tell us a bit more about this integrated thinkers that, that Tony just mentioned there. Yeah, it, it was very interesting because um, integrated thinking is a term that has been coined by an organisation called the IIRC, which is the International Integrated Reporting Council. And they have developed a framework for reporting which really brings in not just the financials but all sorts of different resources and capital. So, for example, the value of your human capital, your relationships, environmental capital. And the idea is that organisations need to report on that. But what they've recognised is that if they're going to report on how, how they're making value in a very broadest way, you need, the, the work needs to actually go on inside the organisation. We need to think in an integrated way. So what we did in the survey, we um, asked some questions around what we considered were the key facets of integrated thinking. And they are influence, relevance, trust and analysis. And that is they, they are the four key principles which we've developed that set out um, the global management accounting principles. And I like to think of them as bringing the technical side of business together with issues like trust and the cultural aspects. So it's the hard and the soft together. So we deliberately asked some questions in our survey that really looked at how well organisations were practising in these four areas and we were quite surprised that we actually found a very distinct group who showed, you know, they were way ahead of 
their peers in these four areas. There were 25% of the survey. Um, and what was interesting about it, though, they were achieving better results. Um, they were performing better. They were getting uh, fewer failures because of poor information. You know, they were executing strategy better. So so that was quite an interesting finding for us. I, I have to ask at this point, and forgive my naivety on this, but this sounds more like management consulting or consultancy rather than, you know, something you'd expect to come from a management accountant, accountant or have I got that completely wrong? Well, and we discussed that before, didn't we? And I think it's a really good question. And I think this is accounting, but perhaps not as you know it, Russell. It's accounting 2.0. It's recognising that what matters is less the number, but the information and the judgment that you form on the basis of it and having all of the relevant information. And I think what this is saying, particularly in the face of automation, new technology, the Internet of Things, all of those big mega shifts that are taking place, is that in order to take great decisions, consultancy, uh, accounting and many other professions are going to have to change together with the leadership competencies and capabilities of those running businesses in order that we're all fit for purpose for the 21st century. Okay, um, a couple of stats I was quite surprised to read. Um, but that only 39% of respondents, respondents are, are confident that their bonus structures are helping them uh, strike the right balance in short, medium and long-term value generation. And just 23% believe they are highly effective at fully assessing the needs of external stakeholders. So kind of begs the question why they aren't, again, doing something about that that's, as well. That's quite interesting. But only the other day I was talking to um, a contact of mine who um, has worked at Shell all his career. And he was talking about some of the issues that they have around balancing the short, medium and long term and how, how to bring everything in the organisation together and think about stakeholders, which is, you know, not just shareholders, but it's also suppliers, it's customers and so on. And, and I I sort of feel that it's really because there's there's not a sort of overarching framework to understand value and understand how do the incentives connect with the long-term goals of the organisation. And, and it's very, very tempting to think too much about short-term results and not think very broadly um, and think about how does this business model work that we, you know, for our organisation? What are all the levers that we need to pull? And how do we have to incentivise within that business model to get those long-term results? And I, I think that's, that's one of the issues for me. Um, and again, sort of the whole notion of integrated thinking brings in this consideration of who are your stakeholders, um, you know, just identifying them, prioritising them is a really important part of, of the I was, business. I was just going to say, I just want to clarify as well, we're talking about bonus structures across the entire business, yes, just not, not the season. No, yeah. no, yeah. exactly, because, yeah. you know, obviously many organisations, it isn't just what goes on at the, the very top. Yeah. Um, you know, it's how do you incentivise people at all levels yeah. so that you aren't getting them to achieve short-term goals at the expense of what you want to do in the long term. And a lot of that is about choosing the right metrics, choosing the right performance targets that are actually connecting short um, to the long term because we often talk about the short term as though it's a very bad thing and the long term, you know, long term good, short term bad. But actually it's not, so, you know, it's, it's more a case of connecting the two effectively so that what, what you do in the short term 
is actually feeding the long term. Um, you know, they're not at odds with each other, as sure. it were. I, d- I don't know if this is a fair question to ask, but c- could you give an example of you know one of the companies that you've dealt with or surveyed that are an in- that you would class as an integrated thinker, or, or is that a bit unfair for you to pick out? One or two. Um, well, in terms of the integrated thinkers, they were sort of just anonymous through the survey, Fine. so okay. it's, it's quite difficult to say. But right. it, it is—it's—it's it's a real holy grail to but, really. But we, we do have one example, don't we, which we cite, which is Shell. Yes. And what yeah. um, what what we draw attention to there, and it was interesting because this was highly relevant because of their big acquisition. Yes. That was being worked through at the time that we were doing this research. So Shell have this um, history and recognised for scenario planning, assessing what they're doing now in the context of different potential future outcomes, and that's deeply embedded within their culture as well as their sort of knowledge base. And it does mean that they are taking decisions which may not seem right now like the obvious decisions to take, but from the basis of thinking about those different futures, mm. stand the test of time. Okay. Um, I want to pick up on the issue you highlighted in the report about uh, translating data into insight. And again, it's, it's just a question that I've often thought about in terms of just do we, do we have too much data? Is there a danger that it just becomes a, a, a distraction? Tony, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I'll start from... Uh, something that was quoted at an event we did this morning on the growth of intangibles, which is that 98% of the data that has been created by humanity has been created in the last couple of years. Mm. So there is a lot of data. There is a lot more of data. And it's certainly tempting to conclude that there's too much data that we'll never be able to read all of it. And I think the evidence actually... Uh, points to that as well, it's, process it, 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 it's, it's, yeah, exactly. understand it's, it. It's reading it, it's, it's creating loads of different, you know, the, the, the amount of spreadsheets and graphs that, yeah. that we're now provided, you just don't have the time and it's so... So, so then, and picking up on Gillian's framework, there's the hard side of this and the, if you like, there's the soft side and then critically it's how those two things relate. So what we're seeing now is the beginning of experimentation on new kinds of analytics, reading Twitter feeds, for example, what insight does that give Mm. to a company's culture? How do you establish a baseline within which you can compare what what general expectations would be, how those have changed in a particular business or company or a particular conversation about a crisis or something like that? Or things like Glassdoor, which give access on a social media platform to what people are saying about their own business. So there's a lot of data around, but it's also true to say we don't spend enough time thinking about what data do we really Mm. value, Mm. what is material. And maybe the question then isn't so much that there's too much data. The question is we're not spending enough time thinking about what kind of data matters. And then that takes you back to the whole issue of, Firstly, collaboration and, and do we trust each other? Are we talking with each other? Oh, I didn't realise that that could really matter, um, says somebody responsible for marketing to finance or the other way around or um, looking at engagement data which might be seen as owned by the HR department. And how do you then connect that to a broader understanding of what's going on in the business? So hard side, the soft side and how they... How they and, link and together. I, was, I was quite struck. Um, the other night we had an event with some of 
seem as very senior executives, people who are chief executives, CFOs, chairman of major organisations. And I know one of them, it really struck me, it, it sounded as though he'd had a real aha moment about data analytics and had realised the potential um, for analytics and machine learning, all that kind of thing, to help with issues like risk management and stress testing in that you could almost throw all the data in and, and let it churn around and it, it would come up with some really interesting answers. And, and, and I recall him saying the other night, well, it's something I really need to know more about. Uh, and that seems to be, you know, we're on the cusp of thinking, how can we use these technologies to really help us with some of the really knotty problems that before now have taken lots more people to do and, and months and months of effort and we sure. can actually um, get some really interesting insights. And it also links to the bureaucracy issue because we tend to think about this as one group of people looking at all the data and trying to make sense of it. And there's really interesting insight from the U.S. Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, to give it its full title here, who talk about the importance of multifunctional teams with different capabilities and deciding what is the relevant decision and therefore what's the relevant data at different levels of the decision-making structure and process. You both just mentioned there about, you know, uh, executives sort of stating that they need to understand it all. And and so it kind of leads me on to my next question, which do you you think companies invest in in enough training to ensure that their leaders do understand how to analyse the data, Mm -hmm. but also keep on top of all the skills needed to make you know effective decisions. I mean, the, the environment around them obviously is changing so rapidly, and we, you know, you've, you've mentioned there, uh, Tony, about you know social media, and I've done previous podcasts about how you know the social CEO and how many um, CEOs are, are, are sort of using social and um, you know the, the, the tools around them. Um, but but it's like you say, it's, it's it's constantly changing, and there's new opportunities and new data emerging and new ways to analyze the data. Can, can they stay on top mm. of it all? I think some of it is. There's only so much they can pick up themselves, but there's a generational issue here as well. And it connects up with the whole trust and collaboration piece of this research, which is that people in the C-suite, very senior levels, also need to work out how to talk across generations and really tap into that knowledge that might be there in other parts of the workforce, um, at the sort of younger ends, people who really get some of this stuff. So a lot of it might not be about them having the knowledge themselves, but knowing who has and being able to have a conversation um, with those experts. And so a lot of this is about being able to communicate really well. Um, I mean, similar, Tony mentioned cyber um, risk as well. That's another whole area of its own. Now, you, you, I don't think we can expect a C-suite or a board to know all the detail about absolutely everything, but they need to know where to look. They need to know where the expertise is. So that, again, is where this whole issue of being able to communicate, influence and, and just trust, you know, build the right culture. Yeah. yeah. And just to build on that example and then let's pick up another aspect of your question. So I was talking to one of our leading chairmen of one of our biggest companies and they are subject to major cyber attacks two or three times a week which are potentially able to bring the business to a halt. And they will speculate about what's the source of origin of those attacks, but what they're also starting to recognise 
is that it is beyond their experience to understand that kind of thing. That that knowledge is owned by different generations. So this goes beyond a kind of engagement or motivational thing. It goes right to the heart of whether you can keep your business running. And recognising, therefore, that you need to bring other people into that conversation, absolutely respect their skills and their experience, but to do it in a way that requires some kind of humility and some recognition that that cyber geek over there could actually be the person that makes the difference to whether my business is going to be operating next week is causing some real shifts in conversation perspective around the boardroom. And to add to that, that focuses on the skills side, which is what your question is largely around. But some of this goes back to are people having authentic conversations? Are people able to own up to, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. And those are some of the big insights that came from the financial crisis or some of the other big corporate governance um, failures beyond the financial sector, where people clearly took decisions around complex financial products or instruments or whatever, where they didn't really know, but they kind of relied on past performance being a sufficient guide. That's not to say that everybody's got to know everything. But it is to say you've got to be able to call it and you've got to be able to have that real conversation with each other that just says, I don't get it. It's not making sense to me. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was really interesting. Um, we ran a panel in Poland recently um, with some of our really young, energetic SEMA members. They're all working in finance functions. It, it's in the city of Wrocław, which is one of the fastest growing cities in Poland. And we had people there from Shell and HP, uh, Nokia, um, and, and many of them work in the shared service centres out there. And what really struck me, these were all finance people in the room, and the first thing they really got onto was culture. But the thing that the word that really stuck out for me was they were saying, we need to learn how to listen. And I just thought that's so interesting. It was not about, you know, we've got to go and, you know, share all the numbers across the organisation. It was, we've got to get out into the organisation. Yeah. We've got to listen. And they saw that as a real key competency. And it often isn't listed in lists of competencies. But I think picking up on Tony's point, um, you know, a lot of this authentic conversation is about listening to that other point of Absolutely. view. And, and, you know, being open to sort of challenge or open to new information that you, you know, broadening horizons sort of thing. But Okay. Um, that's a good way to lead into, uh, I suppose, my sort of next question, really, because, we, you know, we've talked in detail about all the findings of the report. So based on everything you've just sort of been talking through, what, what are you hoping for business leaders to do next? Well, an absolute recognition of the value of management accounting but in a way that fully addresses the question that you asked earlier and therefore understands that what we're talking about here isn't so much the numbers, but it's understanding everything that you need in order to be able to make the best possible decision in order to succeed now and in the future. And if I can just back that up and mention, therefore, two things linked to that. One is there's a tool or resource which would help executive teams and boards translate the conclusions of this report into checking out 
how they stack up against um, some of those general findings. Does that apply to me or not? And what do we think about that? But then in terms of what do we do about it, we've both been talking about our global management accounting principles. And those talk about how you link the principles of being influential by drawing on the relevant information, analysing in the context of the business model what will create value on the basis of trust and all of those linking together. And that's really a framework for great decision-making, informed by the key areas of practice, of expertise that underlies management accounting. So we have a self-assessment tool which we're piloting right now before we launch it more widely on the marketplace and we're getting some really good feedback on that and that's really about understanding how you unlock the value from finance through management accounting and we would invite anybody listening who wants to be part of that pilot community to um, participate in that and help shape that for the future. Okay well that leads me I guess onto my uh, sort of next uh, question, which is really where can our listeners go mm-hmm. to to get involved in that, but also where the, where can they get more information about yeah. about the report? Okay, well, if they're interested in responding to Tony's call for in being involved in the um, management accounting principles, they can go to maprinciples.com and sign up there. Um, to find more about the report, um, the report is on cgma.org. Uh, slash joining the dots. But in fact, if you just go to cgma.org, you will find it. You'll find the tool there, the report. There are also more detailed interviews. Um, So there's quite a few resources there. Um, So that's the place to go. Fantastic. Okay, well, um, I think that about wraps up uh, another C-Suite podcast. So thank you very much again to Tony Mannering and Gillian Lees of SEMA. And just to confirm that address again, uh, you can download the Joining the Dots report from the Chartered Global Management Accountant website at cgma.org. Um, and I think, uh, as you just mentioned, you sort of follow the links on, on the homepage and, and you'll find uh, a, a link to the, the download the pdf um of course if you want to subscribe to this series of podcasts uh, we're on soundcloud or you can uh, search the itunes store for the c-suite podcasts and uh, as always please do give us a positive rating and review if you do subscribe there thanks again to marketeers for hosting us and recording the show and finally if you want to get in touch with me directly about the series then the best place to do that is uh, via twitter using at russ goldsmith or just drop me a line using the contact form at c-suitepodcast.com thanks for listening and goodbye